We have come to Jude, verses 28 to 23. Now, um, if anyone has a New American Standard, they can help with this first note. If not, then I'll fill you in. Uh, The New American Standard has a marginal note on verse 19, which is actually a literal translation of the Greek text. Does anyone have that? And if so, uh, how are the intruders described in that marginal reading? Who has an NASB? Yes, Lois? Worldly people uh, devoid of the Spirit? Yes, not having the Spirit. Not having the Spirit. That's the literal rendition of the Greek text. I like devoid. It has a, a... A nice flavor to it. It means the same thing. So in verse 19, those persons who have uh, inserted themselves into this congregation for for purposes of their own, basically to undermine it, the intruders are described as not having the spirit. All right, now, what is Jude doing in verses 20 to 23? Keep in mind that we've noticed throughout this study that Jude is a man of antithesis. You may recall that antithesis as we looked at the structure last week of verses 16 and 17, and then we observed the structure of verses 19 and 20. So this is review. What do you remember from last week about the structure of verses 16 and 17? which is also true of verses 19 and 20. I can't ask Art or Margie because they were still in the frigid Midwest. Well, the two different groups. Yes. Go ahead, Dick. Them and us. Okay. Or how is it in the text? (laughs) How is it in the text? Remember, we noted that this is an anaphora. These? Well, these and them, and who else? Who are the good guys here, Dick? Verse 17, verse 20. We're back to the beloved. Anyone? You. You, yes, the you, the pronouns. Okay, so you notice that verses 16 and 17 have an antithesis. An antithesis between them or these and you. Same thing recurs in 19 and 20. An antithesis between them or these and you. So Jude is a man of antithesis. He's talking about the antithesis, that is the opposition between these two groups in this community. All right, now since he's a man of antithesis, back to our question about verse 19. He says that those intruders have not the spirit. So what's he up to in verses 20 to 23? Pardon? He's describing the you as having the spirit. Exactly. He's describing the antithesis. Namely, those do not have the spirit. You do have the spirit. Now, he's going to proceed in the, in the manner of antithesis, as I, as I noted 
but he's also going to proceed in the way of symmetrical antithesis, and we'll get to that at the bottom of your first page handout a little later. But let's begin with a very interesting structural pattern in this verse 20 and 21. We have a, a symmetrical outline which begins with a second person plural participle. Now, when we say a second person of a verb, what are we talking about? What person are we talking about? You. You. Okay, what's the first person? I. I or? We. We, okay. What's the third person? They. They or? He. She. What's the neuter? It. Okay. All right. So now, reviewing your elementary school grammar. How do you say you in the plural? How do you say plural you? How do you say use? Or yunus? Yunus, yes. No, you don't say yunus. That's not proper English. How do you say you plural? You. Y'all. We. We is first person. Just you. No, 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 no. No? Say ye. Yeah. Yeah, there's the King James. The King James was able to distinguish between the singular you and the plural you. You, an individual, ye all, or more than one you. Okay? Now, we don't do that anymore. See, we've lost something <laughs> uh, with, the, with the loss of ye. But nonetheless, uh, it's probably a good thing that we've lost it in some ways. All right, so you understand the persons of the verb. Now, what's a participle? What is a participle? It's an ing word. It could be an ed word, but it's an ing word. But what's it doing, Randy? It modifies what? It's a modifier. So what do you call a modifier word? If it modifies a verb, what's it called? Adverb. It's an adverb. What other kinds of modifier words do we have? Adjective. What's an adjective do? It modifies a, a noun. Very good. All right. So a participle is a verbal adjective. Okay? For instance, she is sleeping. Is that a participle? No, it's not. Okay? It's simply the active voice of the verb sleep. But if I say sleeping girl, is that a participle? The sleeping girl. Yes, that is a participle because, you see, I'm using the ing form of the verb sleep to modify as an adjective to describe the girl, sleeping girl, even if I said a blue shirt. Okay, blue describes the shirt. That's an adjective. All right, so a participle is a verbal adjective. In this case, it's an ing word. It could be an ed word. It would depend upon the kind of uh, tense it was. <clears throat> and so we're looking for a plural participle. You know it's plural because it's you plural, plus a reflexive pronoun. What's a reflexive pronoun? Give me an example of a reflexive pronoun. Marge? Himself. Himself. Itself. Itself. Myself. Okay. All right. So we're looking for a, uh, a, a participle, ing word, which is followed by a reflexive pronoun. And where do we see that in verse 20? 
building yourselves. Okay, so building up is the participle. Yourselves is the reflexive pronoun. All right, now let's skip down to verse at the end of verse 20, in the beginning of verse 21, and let's see if we can find the same pattern once again. A second person plural participle plus a reflexive pronoun. Do you see it? Yourselves. Yourselves in verse 21. All right, so there's the reflexive pronoun again. Notice it's the very same reflexive pronoun that we had at the, at the beginning of verse 20. Where's the participle? Praying. Praying. There's the participle. All right, so we have the participles building up and praying. We have the reflexive pronoun, yourselves. The reflexive pronoun is identical in both cases. We have different participles, but we want to take, um, we want to talk in a moment about why he's done what he's done. All right. Now, the second thing we want to note is uh, the Greek text of the original, in which, is he, in which he uses the word agiotata, or agiotate, which is a superlative. Now, if you look at your sentence, if you look at your verse, can you tell me what two words are in the superlative degree? What's the superlative degree? Most holy. Most holy. There you have. There's the superlative degree. So agiotate means most holy. And it is compared with agio below it which is the holy in Holy Spirit. Most holy lines up with holy. And in the middle, and you'll notice that the alpha at the beginning of both of those words is identical. In other words, he begins with the same Greek letter. Then he begins with the same Greek letter at the uh, center, the pi, that what's is highlighted and underlighted is the Greek letter pi, it's pronounced like the letter P in English, piste, and pneumati. What do you see in pneumati? What's a pneumatic drill? Spirit. Air. It's an air hammer, isn't it? Okay, so what does this mean, Marge? Spirit. It means spirit. That's the Greek word for spirit or air. Okay, so pneumati means spirit. What's piste mean? Faith. Your most holy faith. Now, let's notice what he's done. This is a very interesting uh, structure, very interesting pattern. We already pointed out that the reflexive pronouns are identical, yourselves. We have participles. They're not the same word, but they are reflective of one another. The most holy, which is related to faith, is related to holy within the Holy Spirit. And the relationship between faith and spirit is also reciprocal. This is a chiasm, but it is a symmetrical, reciprocal chiasm, which means that it reflects upon itself. For instance, building up and praying are reflexive or reciprocal. He does this in order to underscore the fact that in praying, you are being built up. In building yourself up, 
you are going to do it through prayer. You're not going to build yourself up unless you pray. So he puts them in symmetrical or parallel fashion in order to underscore their mirror relationship, their reflexive or reciprocal relationship. Now, how could you be holy? The only way you could be holy is through the Holy Spirit. So he lines up most holy with respect to faith with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of that holy faith. That holy faith comes from the Holy Spirit. If you possess that holy faith, you possess the Holy Spirit. He places it in reciprocal or mirror reflex relationship. He's reinforcing the fact that you have this. And he comes to the, to the center of this chiasm where he lines up the, the pi words, the uh, piste and pneumati, because you can't have faith without the spirit. And if you have faith, you have the spirit. At each point in this little mirror chiasm, he provides a reciprocal emphasis upon what it means to have the spirit. To have the spirit is to be built up in prayer. To pray is to be being built up. To have the spirit is to have holiness because you cannot have holiness without having the Holy Spirit. And to have faith, you have the spirit because the spirit gives the gift of faith. It doesn't come from anywhere else. This is a beautiful mirror symmetry, a verbal mirror paradigm, a reciprocal mirror paradigm to encourage the readers and the hearers that in having the one, they have the other. In having one line, they have the other line. In having the second line, they have the fourth line, and so on. Beautiful uh, sandwiching paradigm which drives you down into the Holy Spirit and the wonderful gift of faith. Now you'll notice... He doesn't say anything there about speaking in tongues. He doesn't say anything there about working miracles. He doesn't say anything there about having prophetic gifts. He's talking about this is what it means to have the Spirit. What it means to have the Spirit is to build yourself up in prayer. What it means to have the Spirit is to pray and be built up. What it means to have the Spirit is to have the faith, the faith of the gospel. What it means to have the Spirit is to be holy to be walking in a holy manner. He's not talking about any of the extraordinary gifts. He's talking about the ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit so that the mirror reflex here is those having the Spirit, those filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with what Jude is talking about in this little mirror chiasm. Does that suggest that by the time Jude writes this epistle, Charismatic gifts have disappeared from the church. As for tongues, they shall cease, the apostle says. Is Jude attesting here by his not emphasizing them? Is he attesting here to the fact that they have disappeared? They have passed away. They no longer continue because they're no longer necessary. Well, I won't grind the axe on that point. I only observe it. I'm not the first one to observe it. There are others that have noted this. 
because most commentators believe that the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit have disappeared from the church by the end of the first century. That is, those who aren't wild-eyed fanatics. All right, any questions about that? Now, let's specifically look at what it means to be full of the Spirit, to have the Spirit, and not to think that having the Spirit is some kind of second-stage blessing, not thinking that being filled with the Spirit is having some extra added gift, like speaking in tongues, doing miracles, uttering prophecies, or whatever. Let's not fall into the trap, because Jude doesn't, let's not fall into the trap that's thinking that being filled with the Spirit is something you've got to go get from somebody else, or some extra blessing you've got to get. Let's see what he says about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Well, specifically, he says it means to edify and be edified, doesn't it? To build up. You are here, ostensibly, for the purpose of being built up. We are here, as a seminary, to build you up. That is our privilege to serve you in that regard. And to encourage you in the faith as we build you up in understanding the word of God. It is a great privilege for us to do this. It is a wonderful delight for us to do this. And we do it for the sake of the church For the sake of you who are members of the church, we do it in order to build you up. So, part of the gift of the Spirit, being full of the Spirit, is to build one another up. In the Word of God, in the text of the Scriptures, the type of thing that we're attempting to do here from Thursday night to Thursday night. And I thank you for being here to be built up. Second of all, Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with faith. Faith is itself a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You do not have genuine faith unless the Holy Spirit has filled you with it, has created it in you. If you have faith in Christ, genuine and sincere, you have the Spirit. It is as easy as that. If you don't have genuine faith in Christ, you do not have the Spirit. You're like the intruders here. But if you do have it, then fear not. Don't sit around taking your spiritual pulse, wondering whether or not you got enough this or that or the other thing. If you have genuine faith in Christ, you have the Spirit. Now get on with it. And stop stewing. It's a tendency in Calvinism to sit around and stew. We don't need stewards. We need people that are dishing it out. Okay. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. See? You believe, you're leaning on the bosom of Christ like John at the Last Supper. The Holy Spirit has laid your head down on the breast of Jesus. Trust it. Rest on it. Be assured of it. All right, now, the next thing that you see in this list is prayer. Now, of course, if you're not a praying person, you're not really having the Spirit, are you? You're really not filled with the Spirit. 
If you're not a praying person, then you're really not part of the Christian faith. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you profess. If you're not a praying person, don't talk to me about having the Spirit. Don't talk to me about having faith. With the Spirit comes prayer. With the Spirit comes the love to talk to God. That's all prayer is. It's you talking to God. You can talk out loud. You can talk in your mind. You can whisper to yourself. You can think in your brain. Whatever you do, you talk to God. But that's what it is. It's a conversation. Prayer is your personal conversation with God. Now, one day you hope to sit before his throne and talk to him. Do you not? I trust you do. One day you hope to sit at the feet of Jesus and talk to him. I trust you do. Then what's the matter with you talking to him now? Why aren't you talking to him today? Surely if you want to talk to him then, you want to talk to him now. It's a delight for you to visit with your Lord and Savior by the filling of the spirit that's been given to you to do so. Now, this doesn't have to be two-hour prayer meetings. It doesn't even have to be 20-minute prayer sessions. It can be short, expository times during the day when you do it. I'm not dictating how you pray, but do you pray? That's the issue. So, if you're filled with the Spirit, you do pray. So, do it. Number four. Being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the love of God. Verse 21, the love of God. If he has a passion for you, is it not a reciprocal in you that you have a passion for him? If he bestows his affection, his tender, rich affection... Upon you, do you not bestow your tender, rich affection on him? If he loved you, do you not love him? This is what the Spirit does. It works in your heart the affection, the passionate affection, the passionate, affectionate love and amor for the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That's part of the work of the Spirit. It is as sweet and tender as the love of a man for a woman, woman for a man. It is as genuine and sincere as the love of a mother for her child or father for his children. It is a love which exceeds all of that, and yet it is like it. If you know that love, then that is the kind of love God has, God invites you to experience with him. He is a loving heavenly father. Your elder brother Jesus Christ laid down his life in passion for you. Do you reciprocate with no less passion for him? The Holy Spirit breathed upon your hating heart and transformed it into a, to a sphere of affection and delight and pleasure in the Lord God. Do you repay the Holy Spirit by blowing out the flame? I think not. This 
love of God consumes your soul because he is the object of your everlasting affection. Now, the next thing you'll notice in verse 21 is that those filled with the Spirit are waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the parousia. They're waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. They're waiting anxiously for the return of their Lord. The Spirit longs to bring Christ to you. He does in bringing you into the drama of his kingdom now. But he also brings to your heart that yearning and longing for him to return quickly, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Is that the longing of your soul? Are you anxiously waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus? You should be. You should be. Because he will come. He will come. He has said he will. And he will keep his promise. Now the next thing is that they're not only waiting for the second coming, they're waiting for the mercy of Christ to eternal life. This mercy is a gift to the miserable, wretched sinners who in their shame, guilt, and contrition plead with God Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. This is the yearning prayer of everyone filled with the Spirit, whether they're preparing for communion or not, although it should be there when they are. This is the yearning prayer. Lord, do not treat me according to my shame. And the guilt of my transgressions, be merciful to me, O Lord, be merciful. And having prayed in the Spirit that prayer, they rest upon the mercy received. Because whosoever cries out to the Lord for mercy and sincerity receives the mercy of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that mercy endures to eternal life. It is not a mercy which once given will be withdrawn. God could no more do that than he could do it to his son. God could no more take away his mercy than he could take away the benefit of his son's death on the cross. So having given you that mercy, he will give it to you unto eternal life. You are waiting in that mercy unto eternal life. It is your eternal reward. It is guaranteed in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not do it so that he might somehow die for you on on the cross and you go to eternal damnation. He died for you on the cross so that you can go to eternal life. That is the range and extent and the majesty of his mercy to miserable, wretched sinners 
that we are. And so we wait. We wait in that confidence. We wait in that fullness. We wait in that spiritual gift that has been granted to us. We wait with full confidence for his appearing. But there's another side to that mercy. And the rest of this section goes on to talk about those being filled with the Spirit who have the other side of that mercy. Not only have they received mercy, not only are they waiting anxiously for the mercy of God unto, of Christ unto eternal life, but they are merciful. They show mercy to others. They show mercy to miserable sinners like they are because they know I receive mercy. I extend the mercy of Christ by invitation and offering to others. I deal mercifully with other wretched sinners because I am a wretched sinner. Now in a moment we want to talk a little more about how Jude here is balancing what he has done in the middle section of this epistle where he's had these very severe and harsh warnings against sinners of a particular stripe and variety. Many sinners of particular stripes and variety. But notice what he's doing in this unit. In this section, verses 21 through 23, he is particularly encouraging this community to invite mercifully, to distribute mercy, to show mercy, to act mercifully. And to do so for the sake of saving sinners from their sin. To point them to Christ, invite them to Christ, draw them to Christ, demonstrate the life of Christ, so as to bring them in the spirit to the same Christ who brought them mercy. Here is mercy received and mercy shared. Mercy gotten by gift and mercy distributed. What you received by the mercy of Jesus Christ was not a private lockbox gift for you alone. It is something to be passed around. And finally, this fullness of the Spirit includes salvation. Verse 23. You have been saved. Seek the salvation of others. You have been redeemed. Seek the redemption of others. This is a wonderful privilege doesn't mean that you need to go knocking on doors. <clears throat> but if that's calling that you feel, then go ahead, go knock on doors. But for those who are in despair, for those who come into your purview, for those who come into your circle, who are desperately crying out for answers, you who have been saved, share the saving good news with them. Do not be afraid. Do not hesitate. Do not... <clears throat> Uh, back off. Be bold to demonstrate the saving grace of Christ where you are given opportunity, where you have occasion. You don't need to be buttonholing people. 
You don't mean being offensive, but at the same time, being winsomely ready for any opportunity that is presented to you to share the knowledge of the saving grace of Jesus Christ with those who do not know it or with those who reject or spurn it, but who will listen. Or for those who will come in deep brokenness and cry out, what must I do to be saved? Now this brings us to the antithetical symmetry, which we've been alluding to, but have not particularly specified, because Jude does this. As he's working through these four verses that we're looking at tonight, he is actually providing a symmetrical antithesis to things he's already discussed in this epistle. Now let's begin with the you category once again. What group of people are the you category in this epistle? Church. They are the church. Mm, these interlopers are in the church. Christians. They are the Christians. Very good. Okay. So who are the them? Those without the spirit. Those without the spirit. They are the okay. non Christians. Let's keep our patterns, our categories parallel. They are the non Christians. Okay. They are the pretenders. They are the intruders. They are the hypocrites within this church. Okay, so he's dealing with an antithetical symmetry, and he's placing those categories over against one another, you and them or these. All right, now let's take that word, that phrase, building up, in verse 20. This is an antithetical symmetry. What's on the other side of this phrase, building up? What's the antithesis to building up? Yourselves. Yourselves. No. What would be opposite to building up, Marge? Tearing down. And where do you see that? Verse 19. Separate themselves. They are causing divisions. They are undermining the unity of the fellowship. All right, so here he's encouraging, on the one hand the building up or the edifying of those in faith. On the other hand, he's acknowledging those who have come into this community who want to divide it and, uh, as we're paraphrasing, tear it down. Now, he's also commended them for their faith. What's the antithesis of faith? Doubt. Stronger than that. Unbelief. Unbelief. Where do we find unbelief in this epistle? It's way back in verse 5, where he talks about the unbelief of the wilderness generation. Yes, okay? So, notice once again, he's commending this community for being unlike that wilderness generation. They are built up in faith. That community was torn down. It was rent. In fact, it all died in the wilderness because of an evil heart of unbelief. Right, now they are being built up in the most holy faith. Holiness. These are people who are walking in the way of holiness. What's the antithesis to holiness? Evil. 
Evil. What does he talk about? Ungodliness. Very good, Randy. Verses 15 and 18. The opposite of holiness is ungodliness. They're unholy. They live an unholy life, even as they live an ungodly life. Praying in the Holy Spirit. What's the antithesis to praying in the Holy Spirit? Trusting yourself or believing in yourself. Verse 19. Separate themselves. Verse 19. Not in the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit. They do not have the Spirit, therefore they are persons of no prayer. They do not pray. The love of God. What's the antithesis to the love of God? Wrath of God, but in this uh, in, in this instance, in Jude's epistle, verse fifteen, the judgment of God, the judgment of God, in verse fifteen. All right, we're, we're proceeding on the basis of how he is lining up the antithesis to the things he's already laid out. The them group or these intruders. Demonstrate these characteristics in their lifestyle. They do not have the spirit, and because they do not have the spirit, they do not have these other things. You have the spirit. Because you have the spirit, you have the antithesis of what they have. So he is answering in these last verses of this epistle. He is responding to what he has laid out as the opposition of those, of the opposite characteristics of those who have infiltrated this community for evil purposes. Mercy. You have mercy. You've received mercy. You show mercy. What's the antithesis? Judgment. Being merciless. Being pitiless. Being unmerciful. Mercy is showing benevolence. You have been shown benevolence. Benevolence is the Latin for goodwill. You have been shown Benevolence by Almighty God. What are the merciless showing? Malevolence. Ill will. You've been shown goodwill, benevolence. They show malevolence, evil will. Pitiless people in the Christian community. Merciless people in the Christian community. Severe and unmerciful people in the Christian community, may it never be. May it never be. But if it is, you're looking at what Jude is describing in the Christian community to which he is writing. Eternal life. What's the antithesis to eternal life? Death. What kind of death? Eternal what? Let's put it in synonymous categories. Eternal death. Eternal death. Where do we find that in this epistle? In verse 7. Where he talks about eternal fire. Yes, eternal hell and eternal fire are synonyms, but we're looking at the opposite of life, namely death. And finally, you belong to the Holy Spirit. 
You belong to the God of love. You belong to the merciful Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing? What's he doing? He just mentioned the Trinity. <laughs> He's done his three Peters again, is it? He loves these triads. He loves these triplets. So what's he do at the end of the epistle? He folds them into the triune God. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is, the Trinity. Jumping right out of you, at, a, at you, from the end of the epistle to Jude. What about the antithesis? Well, he's already told you in verse 19 that the intruders have not... They reject. They are devoid of the Holy Spirit. What about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 4. They have turned to licentiousness. The grace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are anti-Trinitarian. No, they haven't formulated a creedal Confessional, Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. They haven't formulated something like that. But nonetheless, they are rigidly opposed to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because they have not the Spirit, and they turn the grace of God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ into licentiousness and immorality. The last word to note is in verse 23, which is salvation. What is the opposite of salvation? Damnation. Damnation. Verse 11, perishing. Perishing in eternal judgment. All right. I acknowledge at the beginning of this study that one of the accusations about the epistle of Jude is it's too negative. I pointed out one of the most recent commentaries from a major Protestant publishing house indicating that we can no longer use the epistle of Jude in the Christian church because it's too harsh. We therefore will take from the epistle of Jude what we can contextually redefine and adapt to our better, more enlightened Christian worldview. Yes, that is a mainstream uh, Christian publishing house, a main denominational Christian publishing house. Which one is that again? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to watch out for it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's published by Westminster John Knox. That should tell you all. <laughs> okay. Uh, perhaps you've worn a little thin yourselves on this middle section of Jude, verses 5 to 16, when he seems to be hammering away from these Old Testament examples on negativity, spiritual wickedness, evil disposition, uh, <clears throat> hidden agendas, etc. Perhaps you've uh, been weary of that, and perhaps you've been so weary you don't even want to come back and listen to this anymore. I can sympathize. But now you know Why? When he comes to his epistle, he's balancing everything virtually identically. And he's doing it in such a way as he leaves you at the end with a great positive message of the gospel, of the grace of Christ in God the Father and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. The work of the triune God in giving you the antithesis 
to the antithesis. That is, in making you the very opposite of those who are the intruders and the opposers of the gospel of the God, the triune God of heaven and earth. This is remarkable stuff. You understand why he has written what he's done. You understand why he's laid out this epistle the way he does. Then you can't wait to get to the end. Because the end is beautiful, sweet, and lovely, is a testimony to the gracious work of the triune God in the life of his dearly beloved people, those whom he calls his beloved. And he calls them that three times in this letter. It's another three-peat. He loves those threes. Well, time for you to take a break, take three deep breaths, and relax. We're on the second page of the outline, and we're asking about the mood of the verb keep in verse 21. Mood indicates a kind of state, a state of being. Can anyone guess what the mood of this verb is? It is in the imperative. And why is it in the imperative, Mark? It is a command. Right. We have the imperative mood, even in English. It is the mood of command. And Greek does as well. Uh, There are signs of the imperative in the Greek vocabulary, so you can tell in a sentence where the Greek verb is in the imperative. And this verb is in the imperative mood. Now, back in verse 1, we also had the same verb, the same Greek verb that Jude uses here in verse 21 for keep. Only there, he says you are kept by Jesus Christ or for Jesus Christ. Now, I've paraphrased that to read God is keeping you for or by Jesus Christ. Now, I'm admitting I'm paraphrasing it, but what I want to note about this second uh, sentence, God is keeping you, what mood is keeping you? In, in that first verse, or in that paraphrase of the first verse, is that the imperative? It's not the imperative. What mood is it? It is a passive word in the, uh, the way it's translated originally in the Greek. I admit that, but I've paraphrased it so it's not passive. God is keeping. He's active. And what's the mood there? It is the indicative. Yes, it's the indicative. So we have the imperative mood with verse 21, the command to keep. And we have the indicative mood with verse 1, at least as I'm paraphrasing it, uh, God is keeping. All right, now, uh, those moods may not be familiar to you, so we'll talk a little more about them. What's the interrelation of these verbal moods? Well, the easiest way to explain the relationship between the indicative and the imperative is to observe, particularly in the Bible, and especially in Paul's epistles, but throughout the New Testament, in the Bible, 
the indicative mood is the root, and the imperative mood is the fruit. The indicative mood is the root. The imperative mood is the fruit. Now, the indicative mood is stating a foundational fact or the ground of the state of the individual who is in that mood, who is in that state. God is keeping you. Okay, so you are kept because God is keeping you. That is an indicative state, it is an indication of the state in which you are. Being justified by faith, that is an indicative. You are in the state of being justified. That is an indicative uh, ground or foundation to, uh, to your spiritual condition. Now the imperative is the resulting or responding state. You have been brought into the indicative. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You've been brought into the indicative. Now you respond from that indicative state into which you've been brought by acting out of that state, acting in obedience, acting in accordance with the commands, acting in response to the Lord's revealed will. So the indicative is the ground or foundational state. The imperative is the responding state, the acting out of that indicative state. For instance, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you are in the indicative, loving Christ, then command, imperative, keep my commandments. Out of the one flows the other. Whoever does not keep my commandments does not love me. Okay? See how it works. All right, now, uh, understanding those two moods, at least generally, let's ask the question about the role of the Holy Spirit in relationship to these two moods. What does the Holy Spirit do? He regenerates the the soul, the heart. He indwells the sinner, placing them in that indicative state, that state of being saved, redeemed, justified, an object of grace, loved of God. That's the Spirit's indicative work. Through that, he implants a desire, a love, a fondness for holiness, I have brought you into this new state, this foundational state of being in Christ Jesus. Now, out of that state, I sow the seed of a desire for godliness, a longing for obedience to the revealed will of the triune God. In regeneration, he creates that indicative state. And he urges, as he indwells the believer after regeneration, he urges that renewed will to love the commands of his heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Christ by sanctifying him, by increasing the measure of his holiness as the indicative state works itself out to increasing delight in the imperatives, particularly the imperatives of godliness and holiness. 
You are being conformed to the Holy Spirit. Initially in the regenerative work and ongoingly in the sanctifying work. He does not abandon you. He continues to work upon your renewed and regenerate soul. All right now the indicative imperative relationship, which as I said is fundamental particularly to Paul epistles but is found throughout the whole New Testament, has an eschatological background to it. So we want to ask what does the eschatological aspect of the indicative imperative have to do with this matter, particularly the Holy Spirit's role in creating this paradigm, creating this indicative imperative paradigm in the life of a believer. Well, we begin with what kind of person the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is an eschatological person. That is, he comes out of heaven, bringing the gift of heaven, namely the gift of heaven's life and the gift of heaven's disposition, heaven's inclination. He brings heaven's life and disposition into the heart of a sinner now so that sinner is translated in the indicative state into a present love of the heavenly spirit of God and the heavenly inclination and disposition that his heart has received. The Holy Spirit then reorients the sinner. He eschatologically reorients the sinner. He reorients the sinner to the heavenly life and the heavenly land. This is what Jesus meant when he said to John, to Nicodemus, you must be born anothen. You must be born from above. It is not so much born again as it is born from above. What did Jesus mean by being born from above? He said you must be born out of heaven. You must have an eschatological regeneration. You must have an eschatological birth. You must be born out of heaven's birth. Not just the birth of the womb. Not just the birth of the natural arena. You must be born out of the supernatural arena. You must be born from the arena of the spirit who blows when and where he wills. So, the eschatological role of the spirit is to bring heaven to your soul and to bring the orientation of your soul to heaven as you delight in what heaven wills, what heaven wishes. Speak, O Lord, from heaven, and thy servant heareth. Let me hear your will, O Lord, and incline my heart to obey. This imperative obedience, then, is a heavenly infection. It is an affection to love God and to obey his commandments because heaven is a place where you will perfectly love him and perfectly keep his commandments. His commandments will be sweet to your taste there. They need to be sweet to your taste here. His delight there should be your delight here. The Holy Spirit sows those seeds 
of that heavenly longing, that heavenly lifestyle, that heavenly arena, that heavenly morality. He sows those seeds into your life and heart now. You therefore measure your morality, you measure your behavior, you measure your ethics by the measure of the Holy Spirit, heaven's gift, heaven's person who has come into your life and heart. May I do this thing if I was living in heaven? Can I think this thing if I was living in heaven? Can I watch this thing were I living in heaven? Could I sit down with Jesus to read this thing were I sitting down with Jesus in heaven? The orientation of the spirit of holiness is the holiness of heaven itself. He brings that into your heart and he continues to work on sanctifying your heart unto the perfection of that godliness when he brings you before the face of the Father and the Son in glory forever and ever. Holiness in your personal life is measured by the life of heaven. That is how you are called to act. That is how you are called to speak. That is how you are called to behave that is how you are called to walk. You are walk. You are to walk as the children of the light of heaven, basking in the glory of that heavenly arena, even now as you wander through this world. That's an impossible ethic, Denison. I cannot meet that standard. Of course you can't. But by the indwelling spirit, you are called to seek it, pray for it, strive for it, work it out. For it is God who is at work in you. Spurn it, spurn it, and your pretense to godliness is a sham. Godliness in your life and in this world And before the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, godliness is not an abstract word. It is a word which must be seen in the way you live, the way you talk, the way you deal with others, the way you behave, the things you do not do because you do what God asks you to do. Yes, there are do's and don'ts in Christianity. Because there are don'ts in heaven. There are some don'ts that are so vile and reprehensible that heaven could never abide them. You should not either. Jude alludes to that in this verse where he says, Have mercy with fear. Have mercy with fear. That is, hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. He is warning you that there are some corrupting, polluting, and staining elements of this world and of this life. And if you dabble in them, they are going to consume you. 
They are going to devour you. They are going to overwhelm you. Fear them. Fear them. For indeed, they could be the very agent of your eternal destruction. He's already gone through lists of these in verses 5 to 16. He has pointed these things out. Now it is true that the vocabulary of that 23rd verse in respect to the flesh is probably talking about the inner tunic, the keton in Greek, which is, which is worn close to the skin. And therefore, the imagery here is quite graphic. He's talking about sexual staining. That's what he's talking about. Fear being polluted with that garment. Fear it. Because, of course, it brought those in that previous unit, verses 5 to 16, down to eternal fire. But in so doing, as you fear being captured or taken captive by those desires and by that lifestyle, have mercy. Have mercy for those who are. Be careful that you do not withhold the mercy of Christ, the love of Jesus for vile sexual sinners. Be careful that you do not harshly describe them and discuss them in such a way that you would not offer them the love of Christ were they sitting in front of you or were you talking to them. Be careful that you are so not so uh, uh, repulsed by their behavior that you would not offer them the grace of Christ or say to them, for the love of Jesus, repent and cast them off as unsavable. What did Paul say to the Corinthians? Such were some of you in that cesspool of that seaport in Greece, the city of Corinth, it was as lascivious as anything you can imagine in San Francisco, if not worse. Such were some of you. At the grace of God, changed, redeemed, altered, transformed those people. That grace is able to do so even today, be careful that you do not withhold the mercy of God from those who stand desperately in need of it. Our presentation to the watching world is to be ambassadors of the forgiving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is no sin so vile or perverse that he cannot save or redeem. There is no person who is so vile or perverse that the Holy Spirit cannot regenerate, save that person who has committed the unpardonable sin, and we don't judge that one. If we're talking about sexual immorality, if we're talking about general immorality, if we're talking about personal immorality, if we're talking about lying and stealing and cheating and even murdering, then we cannot say that the grace of God is short of redeeming such a person. It isn't. It can. 
If the opportunity is there to offer it, by all means offer it, and the church stands ready to receive such as who genuinely repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ from such vile sins. We need to be very careful that we do not give the impression to the watching world that we hate sinners. Do we do that? We do them harm in so doing. The love of Christ is omnipotent and can draw the vilest, degraded human being out of the pit of darkness and into the light and life of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Spirit brings heaven into that life. The eschatological antithesis then is the eschatological antithesis between the now and the not yet, the indicative and the imperative. The now, not yet, indicative, imperative of the heavenly life. You've been given the indicative state of heaven, even now. Live imperatively out of it, not yet and forever. Because when you come to glory and you bask in the light of the radiance of the triune God, you will be perfected in that indicative. You will be completed and fulfilled in that imperative. And there your indicative and imperative will become one. You will delight to do the will of God forever from the state of of your indicative transformation. All right, now there's a minor issue here in verses 22 and 23. It is a textual matter. It has to do with the difference between the Textus Receptus, which is the basis of the King James Version, and the basis of the USB or the New American Standard Text, which is Western text, no, majority te- the, the Western text, which has been the basis of all the modern versions of the Greek New Testament. Now, I've outlined it in English so that you can see the difference. There is a shorter version of verses 22 and 23 that is found in the King James Version. You will notice that I placed in brackets alternative English words for the translation of the verse. I want you to know that by those brackets, I'm indicating that the Greek word is always the same. In the King James, mercy is translated compassion. In the New American Standard, compassion or mercy could be translated by compassion. So I want you to know that in both versions, the Greek original is the same. I'm going to say that it is mercy, but you understand that when you're looking at the King James translation, the word that is translated compassion then there could be translated mercy without any change in meaning. Right, now you'll notice that the shorter version in the Greek text is only 21 words in Greek. The longer version behind the New American Standard is 24 words in the Greek text. Three more words in Greek in the longer than the shorter. 
the longer section in the longer section is in the longer version is in bold type. And you'll notice the difference between it as you compare the King James reading with the New American Standard. Now, obviously those that favor the King James and the New King James, those that favor the Texas Receptus, have not changed their reading to endorse the reading that is present in the New American Standard Version. How do we settle this? Is there a way to settle it? I think there is. So let's begin to analyze the issue by looking at the text. And we want to begin, first of all, with verse 21. And as you scan verse 21, what word do you notice? What word jumps out at you in verse 21? Looking. Pardon? Looking. No. Looking. No. Mercy. Mercy. Very good. Mercy. Waiting for mercy. There's that Greek word for mercy. Okay? Now, in verse 22, what word jumps out at you? Mercy. Mercy again. Having mercy. And in verse 23, what jumps out at you? Mercy. Mercy again. Three times we have mercy. Verse 21, verse 22, verse 23, Jude uses the word mercy if we follow the longer version. Does that sound like Jude? Does that sound like something Jude would write? Have you learned anything about Jude's writing style through the 23 verses of this epistle? Have we learned anything about the way he thinks? He likes triplets, doesn't he? He likes triads. He likes three-peats. He likes to say things over again three times, and here he does. So Denison's solution to the uh, debate between the shorter and longer version is to go to Jude's style. Go to his literary style. Go to his habit of using threes. And three mercies means the longer reading is more authentic, in my opinion. So that the New American Standard is properly following the proper Judean version. Well then... How do you account for the shorter version? Well, let me put it to you this way. Is it easier to account for the shorter version, condensing a longer version, or is it easier for an authentic shorter version to be expanded to the longer version? Which is easier? How many of you vote that it's easier to condense a longer version into a shorter version. Okay. It's the right it's the left side of the aisle here. Okay. How many of you think that it's easier to expand a shorter version to a longer version? You're outvoted. <laughs> this is democracy. This is how we vote on textual matters. <laughs> no, not really. All right. I, I do think that it is more likely that a longer version would be abbreviated then that a shorter version would be expanded. So here is one case where I'm going to take a longer version, a longer reading. We usually don't do that in matters of Greek New Testament textual criticism. We usually take a shorter version. But here, we're going to do it because it comports with 
the evidence of Jude's literary style. It is much more likely that this writer, who over and over again in this epistle has used threesomes, it is much more likely it has used a threesome here at the end of this letter, repeating the word mercy three times over. That's the thumbprint of Jude, the epistle's writer. All right, now that leaves us with reflections on Jude's narrative biography. Keep in mind at the beginning of this study, I gave you an article which has been published on the narrative echoes, the words of Brother Jesus in Brother Jude's epistle. Let's think about that with respect to these four verses. Jude's story, his narrative biography. What about Jude? What about his personal life story? Had he received mercy? Had he received the mercy of Christ Jesus, his older brother? Had he been the object of the mercy of Christ Jesus? Indeed he had. He's writing existentially here, isn't he? He's writing experientially here. He's writing out of his own Christian experience, his own spiritual experience. You have mercy. I have had mercy. We've all been objects of God's mercy. Having mercy, then let us extend it. What about the gift of eschatological or eternal life? Had Jude received the gift of eternal life through his brother's death and resurrection? Was he the beneficiary of the cross and empty tomb of his older brother? Indeed he was. For he's part of that believing community that is assembled in the first chapter of the book of Acts. We know that he understands the meaning of the cross And he understands the meaning of the resurrection. He even understands the ascension of his brother Lord into glory. This language comes out of Jude's own story. Well, what about the gift of the Holy Spirit? He tells his readers to pray in the Holy Spirit. Had he prayed in the Holy Spirit? And if so... Where had he done it? In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, he is very likely present in that upper room when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Jude is describing his own spiritual state as he talks to them about the gift of the Holy Spirit a gift which he knows well. And what about prayer? Had he received the gift of prayer? Was he devoted to prayer? In Acts chapter 1.14, that's exactly what is said of him. He is with Mary and the brothers of Jesus and other apostles. He is in the upper room in Jerusalem, devoting himself to prayer. Jude is urging his readers to follow in the footsteps of that existential transformation that has come into his life. He has become a prayer warrior for the church of Jesus Christ. And finally, 
What about Jude's love of godliness, holiness? Was he a lover of the holiness of the Holy Spirit, the godliness of the life of the Spirit? Was he a lover of heaven's morality? And did he delight in practicing it when inviting others into that wonderful lifestyle? While he warned them about the antithetical lifestyle, where he cautioned them to beware of that other lifestyle, that lifestyle which has not the spirit, that lifestyle which is the yawning maw of hell and damnation, that lifestyle which is eternal fire, not eternal light and glory. These phrases at the end of this epistle are in a way a cameo of the biography of this author, this brother, younger brother of Jesus, perhaps the youngest brother of Jesus. These verses, these phrases are expressions of the spiritual odyssey, the narrative of transformation that had come to him when he believed on his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, with, to whom, with Thomas, he would have bowed and confessed, my Lord and my God, as well as my brother. Jude's indicative defines his imperative. His imperatives are the fruit, the mirror mirror reflection of his indicative. His heavenly, heavenly eschatology drives his earthly morality. This is a marvelous testimony to a marvelous transformation of a man who hated his brother, was willing to have him locked up and put away in an asylum. A man who hated his brother, who was transformed by the love of Jesus of Nazareth, brother of Jude of Nazareth. Any questions, comments? Okay, the New American Standard reads, save others, snatching them out of fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. It's the second clause there in verse 23. Revised standard says convince some. Revised standard says in verse in, in verse twenty two. Twenty three. In twenty three it says convince some. No, twenty two. Convince some who doubt. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the word again is mercy. It's the Greek word for mercy, Elias, and that's what's used here. So to say convince them is not to have mercy on them. <laughs> that's not what the text is saying. No, I, yeah, I'm just telling you what. 
Not a good reason to stay away from the RSV. ESV price says the same thing. I don't know. I uh, I don't have an ESV. I'm not inclined to an ESV because ESV is based on the old RSV. And the old RSV was condemned by many Protestant scholars and conservatives, even Westminster Theological Seminary years ago. When it was first... The old, the old original 1951 RSV because it was produced by the National Council of Churches. It was a liberal Bible. We don't read liberal Bibles. Anyway, it, that's not a good translation of the Greek. I thank you for that. You're quite welcome. Thank you for the question. Yes, another, uh, Pam. Well, in, in this little King James I have, it says... Um, in, in 22, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. Now that to me is so much different than a doubt. The doubt having compassion, yeah, they're, they're, mercy. They're confused by a Greek word, which is a hopoxia That is, the Greek word that Jude uses there in verse 22 is only used once in the Bible. So there are all kinds of gifts, guesses about what it means. However, the best lexical background to it, coming from standard Greek lexicons, New Testament lexicons, is it has something to do with doubting. And so that's the reason for the uh, New American Standard Translation, which is the majority view amongst modern scholars on the, on the verse, on the word. Nancy, you had another question? Well, I, well, I'm back to verse 23. I'm trying to, it, in the King, the, the King James, it says, And others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments by the fire. Yes, you see, it leaves out, if you'll notice your handout, it leaves out that phrase on some have mercy. That is omitted in the King James, pulling them, uh, have mercy with fear. See, So that's the reason the King James Version is shorter. And it's based on the majority text, the Textus Receptus. So the Greek version of the shorter King James Version comes from a Greek text. So the issue is, what's the better Greek text? And we're making the case in a conclusion that the longer Greek text is better than the shorter one because it fits Jude's style. We are left with the doxology, verses 24 and 25. Next week, we will complete the epistle of Jude, Lord willing. We'll look at the doxology. So you come all with doxological attitudes. I command you to come out of your indicative state with doxological attitudes. Okay. And keep in mind that following next week's study, we will have a week break. And the first Thursday in February, we will resume our Thursday night studies using the, the words of the book of the prophet Zephaniah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are beloved of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that having the Spirit, we have all three. And having all three, we have the fullness of the blessings of heaven. These blessings specified by Jude in these verses which we have examined tonight. These blessings which are part of the warp and woof of the arena of the kingdom of God. That heavenly Room that heavenly land, that heavenly dimension. There's no more sin, nor sorrow, nor sickness anymore. We wait anxiously for the fullness of that mercy unto eternal life. 
We thank you, O Lord, for building us up through prayer, through the study of your word, through the meditating upon your precious scriptures, the fellowship of the saints, for the work of the gospel, for the love of thinking, praying, believing, acting upon the gospel of free grace, free grace of a righteous Savior, free grace of a dying Savior, free grace of a risen Savior, free grace of a Savior who sits at your right hand and intercedes for us day by day. Lord, thank you for the riches of this grace. And we thank you in the name of him who purchased it for us, Christ Jesus, your beloved Son, our beloved Lord. Amen.